Welcome to the show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason and uh, fresh back from Dallas uh, just two days ago. It was a magnificent reality there in Dallas, as usual. We missed last year because of COVID, but uh, we came back uh, with a force here. In fact, uh, there were 200 seats to sell, and we sold like 219, whatever. Um, and there were 700 uh, individuals that were were captured, so to speak, um, with with our streaming of that event. So and 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 counting because more and more people are are uh, purchasing the streaming uh, feature because it's archived now. So we are thrilled with the way things went. Um, all the presentations they were just fabulous, and looking forward now to our event in Pennsylvania in just four weeks. Uh, we have 655 people that are already signed up. The early bird is now over with. I think regular pl- prices apply, but we only have seats for 345 more people. We are, what, almost yeah two-thirds of the way there with a month to go. So that we can only take 1,000 in Pennsylvania. That's our first event there, and we're opening up there in Philly in that region. Um, and so um, we usually start on the small side when we uh, when we open up a new area and uh, looks like we're we're going to fill all the seats. And we've been doing that so far with every single event we've had so far with reality, except for um, <laughs> Minneapolis. Uh, but I'm not complaining about thirty three hundred people in an event uh in a venue that can hold over four thousand. I mean that's that was de facto sellout. It was massive. Uh Georgia coming up on um let's see, the the Philly March twenty fifth and twenty sixth Augusta, Georgia, coming up April 22nd and 23rd. Uh, that venue will hold 1,100. We're a third of the way there already, two months out, 356 signups. If you're interested in reality, I usually kind of run down all the speakers uh, and everything. I'm not going to do that right now. i got other things to do. Most of you know the details. Uh, it's just a fabulous event. And all the details and all the speakers and all the sessions are available at realityapologetics.com and um, we'll we've we've just been doing fabulous first four of our season are behind us now we got two more to go and uh, really look forward to ending strong I'm confident absolutely confident we will sell out both of the remaining venues so please act quickly we had people calling all the way up to the last day trying to sign up when everything was sold out in Dallas don't let that be you okay uh, incidentally, there's a number of other things that are happening. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to be up in the Seattle area, and let me see if I can find that one. Uh, I'll be at Christ's Church in Federal Way. Um, that's Washington State, and uh, I'll be there for a retreat starting Friday night, but um, open to the public, as it were, Sunday, March 6th. I'll be speaking on the story of reality at both worship services. Uh, John Noyce is going to be live on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube next week on Wednesday, March 9th, 12 p.m. PST. Uh, his, uh, his podcast, To the Point Live, and he'll be talking about cultural issues and cultural trends and taking your questions as well. And Amy Hall will do a live Q&A. Hey, Amy, live Q&A on Facebook coming up this Friday. Now, that's unique because she doesn't do a lot of these things. But um, this reminds me, by the way, if you like this show and you don't listen to 
hashtag STR ask. You need to do so because you get me and you get Amy too. And uh, that's like a major leg up for a show. Um, and there we're just taking questions that people have sent in with the notation hashtag STR ask on it. And um, we we did a bunch of those shows today, three of them or something like that. And um, but Amy will be doing her live Q&A on this Friday. So day after tomorrow, if you get this podcast right away. So that's Friday, the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, right? March 4th. All right. And uh, that at 1 p.m. PST on Facebook for Stand to Reason. Alan Schleeman will be speaking at Carlton Oaks Baptist Church Evangelism Seminar in Santee, California, Saturday, April 2. Well, that's a month away. Okay, just so you can plan ahead for that. So uh, lots of good things coming up here. Once again, for reality, um, events in Pennsylvania and Philly and also in Augusta, Georgia. Those dates in Philly, 25th and 26th of this month, March, and uh, Georgia will be April 22nd, 23rd. RealityApologetics.com. So uh, last week, um, John Noyes and I did uh, a review of a, of, uh, of a critique of an event or a class that I did for STRU. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, we devoted both hours of the shows last week just to that. We took no callers. Lines are open right now, and uh, they're currently getting filled up, which is great. Um, but I have a number of questions that um, have come in at different times that I wanted to draw on responding to, to respond for my opening thoughts today. And there were two questions that relate to things that came up in the critique or were part of um, the class I did on atheism called A Bumping into Reality, Atheism Bumping into Reality in STRU, that I did not get to develop last week. And since they came up as questions here um, in these files that I have, um, I thought I would um, supplement, in a certain sense, some things from uh, last week's broadcast, the issues that I covered there by answering these questions. And the first one... And I don't actually know where I got this. I I read it somewhere. It was in some letter or something. I just scratched out this note on a a Post-it pad. And the statement this individual was making, it was part of an objection, uh, or a concern at least, about a Christian argument. And what this individual said is that it's very difficult to prove that the universe had a beginning. He said it's very difficult to prove that the universe had a beginning. Now, by the, uh, by the way, whenever you see the word prove in any statement, it's always really important for you to qualify what is meant by that word by the person who's using it, all right? <clears throat> because there's lots of different senses in which something can be proven, uh, preponderance of evidence. That would be like 51%. It could be beyond a reasonable doubt. That is the criminal standard of proof, if you will, uh, in American jurisprudence. Uh, so that's a much higher standard than preponderance of evidence. Um, in other words, for preponderance of ev- evidence, it's more likely to be true than false, but most people would not consider that proof. You could have apodictic proof. That means proof without any possibility of it being mistaken. And those kind of proofs are usually 
uh, reserved for mathematical things. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. <clears throat> That's self-evidently and necessarily true um, just because of the nature of the thing and simply reflecting on it demonstrates it to be so. But most things are not in that category. I should, yeah, most, of course. Math things, that's it, pretty much. But the kinds of things that we deal with on a daily basis, um, where we're trying to come to knowledge about things, um, doesn't, doesn't provide us that level of certainty or... Uh, or um, maybe necessity might be a better word. Certainty is a psychological assessment. People can be absolutely certain about things that they're totally wrong about, and there's no good reason to believe it. Uh, But generally, we use the word certainty to describe our attitude of confidence in the reliability of our conclusions based on the evidence that we have for it, the reasons that we have. So when someone says it's very difficult to prove the universe had a beginning, a lot depends on what they mean by that. But I think I don't think it's difficult at all to give a powerful rationale or a number of them that the universe had an absolute beginning. In fact, I gave a lot of that evidence last week in my response to the atheist Drew, his critique of my course. And uh, and I thought it was quite compelling, and the the majority of it was empirical data from the scientific world that the universe had an absolute beginning, even though some are balking at that and they're trying to find a loophole, say the quantum loophole, for example. But um, there's a lot of good reason to believe, just from the scientific world, that it's not that the universe you're not going to get out of this. The universe had a beginning. An absolute beginning. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> that's why I was surprised at the challenge. Very difficult to prove the universe had a beginning because I thought the statement would be just the opposite. It's very difficult to prove that the universe had no beginning. In other words, that the universe is eternal in largely a steady state of some sort. Now, this is what uh, folks believe before the 19th century. And it wasn't until the beginning of the 19th century that a number of discoveries, some by Einstein with general relativity and some by or make that special relativity and and some by uh, observational astronomy, uh, most specifically uh, Edwin Hubble in his telescope. Find, seeing that the the galaxies are kind of speeding away and they're red shifted, indicating movement away from from a place they used to be. And so, if we extrapolate backward, well, that makes uh, makes it clear that there was some kind of beginning, and this is kind of an outward explosion, as it were, and the particles, the galaxies, still moving away. But there is one one thing, a philosophical point that uh, that I didn't pursue that I I thought. I might mention right now. And that philosophical point, it sounds, you know, hoity-toity when I say it, but it's actually a very simple concept. The concept is based on the impossibility of accomplishing an actual infinite by successive addition. Okay? <laughs> uh, that's the hoity-toity way of putting it. Here's the simple way of putting it. You can't count to forever. You can't count to forever. If you are 
adding one to another, you will never get two forever. You will always have a finite number. One, two, three, four, five, a hundred, hundred and one, hundred and two, a billion, a billion and one, a billion and two. You can go on as long as you'd like. But no matter how long you went on, you would always have a finite number. You cannot count to infinity. Now, maybe time is theoretically infinite. One might say that, but, but, uh, but it certainly isn't actually infinite. Because, and this is something that Christians sometimes don't think of when they talk about we leave time and go to eternity. Well, that means we just leave this earthly life and go to another life, the resurrected life, that lasts forever and ever. But it will never last an eternity, because even in that instance, we will always have an age. (laughs) We keep adding. Whatever metric you want to use, we use years here, but it doesn't matter. There is going to be a sequence of events in our lives, a sequence of conscious events that we experience, and these events can continue to add up forever and ever, but will always be a finite number, even though it's increasingly large. So you can never count forward to infinity. You'll never count to forever. Now, if you can't count forward to infinity, given this present moment, you can't count backwards to infinity either. It won't work. Yet that's exactly what one, one must do if he is to countenance a, a, an eternal universe, because our universe is made up of events. Things are happening in our universe, all right? And each of those events can be considered a number— And as time passes, this number gets larger. Now, you could stand at this point in time and call it zero. Counting forward doesn't work, and counting backwards on those events isn't going to accomplish an actual infinite either. So you can never accomplish an actual infinite in either direction by the successive addition of of events. And this becomes then a very trenchant philosophical um, refutation of the concept of an eternal universe. Um, so so actually it's it's not very difficult to prove <laughs> that a universe had a beginning. That alone ought to be adequate to demonstrate that the universe had a beginning. Well, that's not a scientific argument, so what? It is an argument based on philosophical reflection about the nature of reality, which, by the way, science itself depends on in order to operate. In the scientific enterprise, you you must infer from the activity of the world a causal principle. You see things happening, and it appears that some things cause other things. You can't see the cause, the, the act of causing. You just see these events. One billiard ball hits another billiard ball, and the second billiard ball moves. All right? 
uh, David Hume argued you, you, you can see the billiard balls contacting each other, moving. you can't see the cause. But we infer from there a causal principle, and all of science is based on that. It's a philosophic notion, if you will, or maybe a metaphysical notion that is that we have access to through using our minds in philosophical reflection. So this principle, and there are others, by the way, that science depends upon in order to accomplish its task, is a principle that we can use um, outside of science to do some work for us as well, and that's all uh, that I've done. So part of my argument for the existence of God is the coming into existence of the universe. And we talk, I talked about this, and John and I, last week. And you call it the Big Bang, call it whatever you want. But this coming into existence gives every indication of being a, an effect of a cause. And then one has to ask the question, what is a, a, a sufficient cause for the effect in question? And this is where it's not very hard to reason back to someone like the God of the Bible. Someone like that. In other words, our reasoning uh, allows us to infer a cause that is very consistent with the God that we have in the Bible. And this is why I think that when it comes to the origin of the universe, the theistic explanation is much better than the non-theistic explanation explanation, which requires that the universe have no cause. Given the beginning of the universe, there was nothing there to cause it. And this is just unbelievable. Almost literally unbelievable. Why would anyone believe that there's an effect with no cause, especially an effect as large as the universe? And um, and just because we see cause and effect here in the physical world doesn't mean it applies to the beginning of the universe, some say, to get around this. No, this isn't an empirical concept. It is a metaphysical concept. And so there's no reason—in other words, it's above the physical world. There is no reason to expect that causality would not function in that situation as well. Okay, so there's one argument. Now— there was also discussion about the existence of the soul and the challenge to soulish experiences that I talked about in my talk. The criticism was that there were physical brain state events that were adequate to explain what appeared to be non-physical soulish experiences. I was talking with Derek uh, just a little bit before the show about a strange dream I had last night. And uh, in this dream, my house was being recarpeted with shag carpet, which itself sounds a little weird. I don't even know if they still make this, because who buys that anymore? That's like a 60s thing. But maybe people do. Maybe this is a retro deal coming back. But in my dream, it wasn't just shag carpet. It was really long shag. The, the strands of the shag were like a foot long. So looking across the living room that had been carpeted, this in my dream, it was like like an ocean of waves of shag. You, you couldn't even safely walk across. It was weird. Okay. Now, the question that can be raised is, where was all that happening? 
Well, that's because your brain was doing this, that, and the other thing. But no, my brain, all my brain does is is chemical things. That's what my, my it's matter operating a sort according to certain physical and chemical properties. That's all. And in my brain, that's all there is. There is no shag carpet in my brain. Yet in my dream, I saw a shag carpet. So where was the shag carpet? I saw. You didn't see that. You were sleeping. Yes, I saw it. I did not see it with my physical eyes. I saw it with other eyes, but I could make out all the images. I can relive the scenes right now in my mind, just as you can, with all host of things. And you do it all the time. You imagine these things. Where are these things? Now, there's a principle that can be employed here, and it's a philosophic notion that came from Gottfried Leibniz. And again, it's got a hoity-toity name that you don't have to remember, but the principle is really a common-sense principle. And the hoity-toity name is the, the law of the indiscernibility of identicals the indiscernibility of identicals. Now, when I use the term identical, I am using it in a metaphysical sense, okay? I am not talking about something like identical twins, because metaphysically, twins are not identical. They are separate individuals. I am not talking about uh, cars that look identical or uh, circumstances that seem identical. What I am talking about here in metaphysical identity is whether two things that look like, that sound like they might be separate are not separate at all, but are in fact the same thing. So, for example, there is the president of Stand to Reason, and then there is this individual named Greg Kokel. Now, those in, conceptually are separate things, but it turns out they are one and the same, at the moment at least. The president of Stand to Reason just is Greg Kokel, and Greg Kokel just is the president of Stand to Reason. All right? Now, when you think in that term, identicals are not two, but one, metaphysically, metaphysical identicals. And what Leibniz is getting at is is the way to know whether something is identical to an, an, another thing is to ask whether everything that is true— of the one is true of the other. And if you can find anything, even in principle, that is true of one but not true of the other, then the two are not identical. They are separate things. Now, that sounds all, you know, philosophical and, and uh, you know, theoretical, but it has a very practical application to the mind-body problem, which is what we're talking about here, whether the body has a mind or not, whether there are two things or just one. Now, a physicalist will hold that all that's going on is physical events, and this is why it turns out in the critique that drew the um, genetically modified skeptic, that's the handle he goes by online, uh, the criticism they le- leveled was that when I was attributing things like I- images that we see to to soulish activity, I was not taking into consideration the brain activity that was responsible for creating the image. Well, of course, I acknowledge brain activity that 
is involved in creating images, but that wasn't my question then, and it isn't now. My question wasn't what caused this image to take place, but where the image was. And I fully acknowledge there are all kinds of brain states that may be necessary while I am, as it were, while while I am in my body, while I am a living human being, that are connected with mental states that I might have. No question. You could have a car, and the car's perfectly functioning, but if you don't have a driver in the car, it's not going to work. But if the driver's in the car and the car isn't working, then you're not going to get anywhere anyway. So there is an interplay here between, in my illustration, the driver and the car, both functioning, and, it seems to me, the soul and the body. And to identify the physical requirements to get motion of a car doesn't tell us the whole story. You need a driver. And in the same way, the physical requirements to get ideas in your head, if you will, pictures in your head, it requires physical things to happen, but it also seems to be require more. And here's why I know that, because of Leibniz's law of the indiscernibility of identicals. Because I'm going to ask myself a question. If my, if my, the image that I see in my mind, in this particular case from last night's bad dream about an ocean of long shag carpet in my living room, were merely physical, it would have, or completely physical, it would have physical qualities. Brain states have physical qualities. But this particular image had no physical quality. It didn't expand, extend in space. It didn't, uh, it, 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 didn't, it didn't have any substance to it. It didn't function according to the rules of the laws of, um, of physics and chemistry. Listen, you ever dream that you were flying? Your body's not going to, sure, lots of people have dreamt they've been flying. I have. And, but that's, but this, human bodies don't just float away or fly away like they do in dreams. So physics and chemistry is not involved in that. Since they do not have identical properties, the brain states and the mental states, the brain states are not identical to the mental states. The mental states are something different, even if they are caused by brain states. And this is all I need. If I have mental states that do not have physical qualities, then they are not physical things. Yet they are real. I see them. I could even exercise my will in a dream in certain ways, and so can you. You've done it. This means that there are two different worlds that are working together, but they are distinct, the mind and the body. And so just a simple philosophic concept that is is um, derived from observation about the nature of reality, that identical things have identical qualities, will help us to see, to, to make the case for the existence of the soul in spite of and regardless of any brain activity that might be involved in producing a, an image that the soul beholds. The way I mentioned this in the class was, look, at it, you have this image, but if you, break, if you cracked your, your skull open and looked in your brain, you wouldn't see a sea of shag carpet, because it's not 
in your brain. By the way, colors are not wavelengths of light either, because you could see color in your dreams, for example, or even close your eyes and imagine a color. You can see a color, bright red, bright yellow, whatever. Black, I'm closing my eyes now, I'm beholding all of these things, and there is no light. Although one would say that black might be the absence of light, okay, never mind, forget about that one then. Green, yellow, red, fuchsia, all those colors I can see in my mind, and there is no light. Now, in the physical realm, it may be that wavelengths of light function to produce our perception of certain colors, but light is not necessary to see color. We can see it in our minds, with our mind's eye, as it were. All of these are, are, are substantial reasons why we ought to believe that there exists something like a soul where these activities take place, because I am seeing these things, and so are you, that, and I'm using the word seeing advisedly, because you are actually seeing, but you are not seeing with your physical eyes. You are actually seeing, but you are not seeing with your physical eyes. It is your non-physical eyes of your non-physical self that allows you to see things in the non physical world. And uh, actually, this goes to this other question. Can one logically, rationally be convinced of a supernatural unseen world? And my simple response is, yes, you can. You can actually see it. If I'm taking the word supernatural here uh, to be above the natural, Generally, we associate the word supernatural with God, and um, certainly the non-physical world we can see. Whether those that non-physical world, in a certain sense, contains what we would characteristically call supernatural things that are religiously oriented, at least the question is open then. It's not eliminated by some physicalistic predisposition, but rather, since we, we live in a world that has non-physical things too, but like thoughts. My thoughts are mine. I have first-person private access to my thoughts. You do not have access to that. However, all physical things have, uh, in principle, th- uh, third-person public access. Here's a Arrowhead bottle of water. I'm looking at it, holding it with my hand. Any of you could come to my studio and have the same access to this as I have, but you don't have access to my thoughts. Only I have that. So since physical things have uh, are, are third-person public and non-physical things, my own thoughts, are first-person private, then my first-person private thoughts cannot be physical things. Leibniz's law of indiscernibility of identicals. So it turns out those hoity-toity concepts really can serve us well in important questions. Let's, uh, let's take a break, and then we'll come back to your calls here on Stand to Reason. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. 
Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STR Ask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STR Ask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. All right, back at you here. I'm Stan DeReason, Greg Coakley, your host, giving you a piece of my mind, uh, maybe a bigger chunk of my mind today than usual with all that philosophy stuff. And there, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking physicalistically, as we often do. I said, it's in my head. I gave you a piece of my mind, but my mind doesn't have pieces, does it? <laughs> all right, let's see. Uh, in Kentucky, this is Dan. Hey, Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Sure. Um, I, I'm a recent fan. I just found out about you a few days ago. Oh, really? And how, I, yeah, how did I that watched, happen? I, I think I was scrolling through YouTube and uh, saw you had did a uh, thing on Columbo, the oh. tactic Columbo. Oh, yeah. That's and right. I, I, loved, I love your philosophy on, like, gardening versus harvesting because yeah. it just takes the pressure off and like i can be a gardener all day as opposed to a harvester sealing the deal so sure. well you can't be a harvester if there's no harvest but you can always garden and that's another <laughs> aspect of it sometimes the harvest is not ready and uh when jesus is in john 4 talking to the disciples uh the, the he, he's he's telling him he says you say there are four months and then come the harvest i say to you look at the fields they're ripe with harvest but he was talking about sychar he wasn't talking about everything all the time. And uh, and they did have a harvest there. He said, you're about to reap where you didn't sow. So um, th- that comment itself, I think, underscores the concept that in, you have one field in two different seasons, and you also have two different workers on the one team. And, uh, and so I'm glad you like the concept. I'm, I, I wrote a whole book on all of that. And I'm actually writing another on it right now. The book is called Tactics, and you can find it under my name, K-O-U-K-L, if you want to go to uh, Amazon and look it up. So I'm, I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, I just got I just got that book today and your workbook that goes with it. Oh, super. So. Great. Glad to hear it. Um, well, it was kind of weird because I had watched the video, and I commented on how helpful I thought it was. Good. I, I started a YouTube video, and it's a creation-based one where I'm a Christian, and I believe what the Bible says about creation. Mm-hmm. So I tried to talk about how creation science backs up the claims of the Bible, and so mm-hmm. I, was just, I was plainly just thinking about the video. But it was weird. I actually had to apply the Columbo tactic with little I knew of it, because I had, like, two kind of troll-like comments based on what other people thought that, you know, ev- you know evolution is a fact. And, and I've kind of, like, even you know, ask questions of this one person that come, kept coming back to me on um, things. And so it was so easy to 
the concept of just picking one thing to talk about, one thing to garden, because if I went to, were to attack everything biblically, the way he was incorrect, it would be too long. Mm-hmm. But I focused on the one thing, we talked about death and how I thought it was a good thing and how I explained it was bad and explained, you know, why, mm-hmm. uh, you know, through creation. And yeah. and so I just, it really helped. Well, but good I for was, you. I'm glad to hear but that. I was, I was just surprised it happened because I was expecting this kind of stuff from the YouTube channel I've been doing, but haven't been getting it, hasn't happened yet <laughs> until I did yours. Uh-huh. So, but my question is though, um, I would like even in your broadcast today, you know, is it's hard to prove the universe, you know, had an exist, you know, beginning. It, it's a really relevant topic, evolution and creation, mm-hmm. because I think if. If you take evolution to its logical end, it brings lots of death and destruction, and a lot of world leaders have done that to do such a thing. But I want, I'm, I'm not that smart. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when someone comes to me with something, like, do you have a specific technique that you recommend when it comes to evolution, you know, creation versus evolution? Sure. And do you have any resources to help explain creation better that way? Well, um, yes and no. <laughs> Um, here's the approach that we take. Uh, We don't take, um, like, a classic creationist approach. Uh, We critique evolution to demonstrate that evolution on the merits, on its merits, is false, all right? Uh, That if you just, just straight up, without any, without any um, religious considerations in place, um, I, I would reject the Darwinian Model. When we talk about evolution, it's a vague term. We have to clarify. I'm meaning the molecules to man hypothesis, the uh, universal common descent, the uh, um, you know, uh, genetic mutation plus natural selection produces biological novelty, all that basic thing. Um, and so uh, that, that would be what I'd critique. And then on my side, what I would want to demonstrate is that the universe had a beginning, because that is what our story accounts for. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So I, I'm not going to get into an issue of time, how old the universe is and whether days are literal or figurative, whatever, because I don't need to do that in order to make my case for the truth of the Christian worldview. Does that make sense to you? Okay. That makes things a lot easier for me, all right? And so if somebody were to bring up the Darwinian evolution against my my own creation point, and, and keep in mind here, when I say creation, I'm just talking about the origin of the universe— not not any particular time scale, even if I accepted the standard geological or uh, physics or astronomical time scale of three and a half billion years for the Earth and 17, 14 to 17 for the universe, it still had to have a beginning. So even, even if, now I, I don't accept the Darwinian model, just so you know that, I mean, I've said that already, but I want to reinforce that. But even if we were to grant it, it does not give them a beginning of the universe. Darwinism only explains the development of life. It doesn't explain the origin of life, and it doesn't explain the origin of the universe. Okay? So uh, there's a kind of a funny joke um, where you have, uh, you know, the setup is a, a man says, I can make... I, I, I can make life just like you can make life, you know, and so we'll have our thing. First, let me, I'll just take uh, some dirt here, and I'll show you how to make it. And then God says, wait a minute. He says what? He says, you got to get your own dirt. 
So, I mean, I I didn't tell it in a very good way, but you get the point. And so that's a point we can make. Wait, where, do, where do they get their dirt? How do you even start? And so I think we can argue in one sense the way if if an evolutionist says evolution can explain things and we don't need God, they're missing the origin of the universe issue, which is unrelated to Darwinism. Even if a Darwinism were true, in the way they think it's true, it would still require an origin of the universe. God would still be necessary. In fact, there's a whole bunch of people who are theistic evolutionists. Now, that's not my view. I don't track with that. But nevertheless, it's clear to them that God could still be God. The Christian God could still be the Christian God, even with a Darwinian evolutionary scheme intact. So these are separate issues. That's the first thing I want to point out. If you are arguing against Darwinian evolution and somebody—or, I'm sorry, if you are arguing for creation— just writ large now, not all the details, the biblical details that that one might construe from Genesis chapter 1 or 2. If you just talk about creation writ, writ large, and that would be my recommendation because it's much easier to defend that, and if we're successful, we've made our case, uh, then that particular issue is separate from the Darwinian model. You can still believe in Darwin and that doesn't take any force away from the existence of God or the God of the Bible. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I can, I can see that point. I'm just, I want like from my perspective, like I would go against that even like the, theistic evolution, you know, believers, I can see where they're wrong based on what I'm, I'm taking a course on it, so I'm learning why they're wrong. Right. I agree so, with you there, by the way. I'm talking yeah. strategically now. How do we approach yeah. this issue with non-believers? I'm just right. talking strategically, okay? okay? And I think if if we have a choice to argue against evolution based on a young Earth or based on the, the, on the merits of the scientific merits of evolution itself, I'm going to go with the merits of evolution, because I think it dies it's a natural death when you look at the, or maybe a scientific death, I should say, when you look at the details. I don't have to make the case for a young earth, which I think is going to be much—makes my job much more difficult. And I don't have to make a case for a young earth if I'm making a, a case for an ultimate creator, regardless of how old the universe is. That just makes my—that's meant to simplify my task. And the more you can simplify your task— the better it's going to be, okay? So my, you can do whatever you want, but I, my suggestion is, on, on the one hand, focus on the creation event as being evidence for God, because that is also scientifically acknowledged as well, that uh, the, the general perspective from astronomy is that the universe had an absolute beginning. Uh, age of the universe aside, we both agree on that. So then the question is, what's a better explanation for an absolute beginning to the universe? Something or nothing? And if you're going to go with something, now you're in our camp. Okay. Now, in dealing with the Darwinian model, though, um, if you've, I don't know how far you've read in the tactics book, but um, the very first move of the game plan is to gather information using a question, what do you mean by that? Now, so if I were talking with an evolutionist who is trying to assert evolution as a way of explaining the variety of life on Earth, as opposed to God creating 
being involved in designing life, then I'm going to ask that person questions about their understanding of evolution. That would be my first step. So when you say evolution, here's what I'd say to them. So when you say evolution, what do you mean? Well, I mean Darwinian evolution. And I'd say, well, there are actually a couple different forms of that. So tell me what you think actually happened. What is it that took place biologically or whatever, uh, even in general, if you will, to explain it to me? Okay, you know, genetic mutation, natural selection, and then they talk about peppered moths or you talk about finch beaks or some of these kinds of things that people bring up as evidence for this evolutionary view. But I know that there's in science, there's actually two specific kinds of evolution. There's microevolution and there is macroevolution. Are you familiar with those distinctions? Uh, yeah. Dan? But yeah, micro isn't where, like, the God put it in the bird's beak to grow bigger in future generations because he knew they'd need that. And macro is, like, the 13 billion years to make everything. Yeah, what, what, exactly. Although, I, when I would, if I were identifying microevolution, I wouldn't say God put it in their beaks. It's just they have this capability. The, the uh, natural selection can, in some generations, choose finches with larger beaks. Then, and so the population will change. So you get more big-beaked finches than small-beaked finches. And then when the natural circumstances change, you have a, the, the, a shift of the population. But you don't have any genuine evolution that's going on there. You do have natural selection. I mean, there's, but that's not controversial, you know. So, so uh, I, 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 yes, you can look at circumstances where a genetic variation helps a cr- some critters survive better in changing conditions. Like, uh, actually, it was about a month ago. I was taking some medication because I had a, I had a, um, you know, infection. And they said take it all, take all the medication because you don't want to create a strain of this bacteria or whatever that's resistant. Take it all to knock it out, and uh, mosquitoes. Uh, develop resistance to chemicals and stuff like that, DDT, uh, because of uh, some variations and natural selection allows the ones that are resistant to survive, and then there's more of them. So I do not take exception with the microevolution. This is uncontroversial, and it, it isn't helpful with regards to the larger question. The question isn't whether there can be some level of adaptation. The question is whether this can this little engine of genetic mutation and natural selection is capable of 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 driving unlimited change unlimited variation and the answer to that scientifically is no and so uh, it's presumed to be the case but it has not been demonstrated to be the case okay and see what i'm trying to do with my first question is get more information out from that person, like if he believes and knows the difference between macro and micro, then I could ask questions about that. Micro, I accept. Okay, but how do you get macro out of micro? Well, we just, you know, change over time. Da, da, da. Well, what makes you think that you can have unlimited change? I mean, these are the kinds of questions I'm going to ask him. And I'm going to make that person make the case. Okay. And what, what another thing that I'm going to try to do is appeal to what one writer calls the design, Doug Axe, his name is, the design intuition. All right. And um, I have given this illustration before, but once 
um, Dan, when I was leaving the studio at night, I just noticed in the sidewalk there was a whole bunch of ants that were, you know, doing an ant trail. And I asked a very simple question to myself. How do they know where to go and how do they know what to do? And the, the fact is, when you look at a complex social behavior like that, there is no obvious, nor there is no obvious Darwinian mechanism that's going to create that that uh, that complex behavior. Never mind the complex bodies that are pursuing the behavior. An ant, very complex, and. Um, we know when we look at a thing like that, and this is why I call it the design, or Doug Axe calls it the design intuition, that this is the kind of thing that requires a designer with know-how to make. It's not going to happen by accident. That is patently obvious. And waving the wand of evolution isn't going to help. You've got to actually show the pathways if you want to say that evolution did this. Okay, show me how it did it. What is, how did this develop into this? Through small changes in the genes. Each change in the gene, all these small changes, adding more benefit to the creature so it survives better in the next generation. It, it just doesn't work. Now, does that make sense, what I've said so far? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to be asking questions pertaining to that kind of stuff and get force the other person to actually be required to demonstrate that all of these complex behaviors can be shown to have been accomplished through small changes over a long period of time. This has never been done. They see in microevolution the effect of a genetic mutation and natural selection to favor certain changes, but they have never shown the, the, that the, all of these changes have unlimited ability. And, uh, and in any given case, like the ant, that they know the pathways where this happened. They just wave the wand of evolution. It must have happened that way because evolution is all we got. Now, I'll, I'll add one other bit of information here that <laughs> may or may not be helpful. But I think this is a tough nut to crack psychologically with people. People that are absolutely convinced of Darwinian evolution are are not going to give ground very easily because so many scientists affirm it as a fact, even though there are serious problems with it. Okay? And this is why I think it's it's if you know a few things, you can cast some doubt on Darwinism. But I, I would not put all my all my, um, you know, eggs in one basket. That's the that's the phrase yeah. I was looking for. That's why I'm going to go to the origin of the universe because it's a much simpler concept, and it's easier to demonstrate that the universe must have had a cause. Once you get that, and you get God in the picture, now you, you can even bypass evolution for the time being. Because now you've got God, and you have God working in the world, and the important thing isn't that they not believe in evolution. The important thing is that they believe in God and the world he created, however he did that, and Jesus, his son, who came to die for sins. Yeah. So, my, okay, it, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, well, the, the work of the, with the email that I responded based on what I had said on your podcast, like, I thought I had him when I said, do you think death is a good thing? Because it 
seems like common sense that it's bad. But he actually came back to me and said, yes, it's good, mm-hmm. and explained his belief in all the things that he did, with lots of different things, Buddha, right. Torah, Christian stuff. I'm like, oh, my word. Well, you're so gonna have kind of a, me for a loop. <laughs> yeah, well, you're going to have a mixture of belief, even among Christians that believe the Bible's the inerrant, inspired Word of God, on the issue of animal death. Because there's a whole bunch of Christians that think that animal death was not a result of the fall, and that death is actually a good thing. In the, the animal death is a good thing in the in the economy of God. I mean, the the way they'd argue is there's a massive ecosystem here that that regenerates itself as things die and then go back to the soil and they compost out and other things grow up and it's actually a sophisticated ecosystem that looks like it's designed for a purpose. So this all, it doesn't fit in, death and decay doesn't fit in accidentally into the biological world. It seems, they would argue, to fit in purposefully in the biological world. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but, you know, when I went to the county fair once and I went and looked at these pigs, and they talked about how fast pigs reproduce. And if pigs just reproduced without restriction, how quickly they would take over the whole planet. <laughs> it's kind of weird, because when you think of it, but they, they, they have like 15 piglets, and they, they can do that every couple of months, and you just do the math, and pretty soon, pretty soon the planet's filled with pigs. But never mind pigs, think of amoeba. Amoeba reproduces every 20 minutes, they divide in two. And in within a fairly short period of time, if these things didn't die, then the whole Earth would be covered in amoebas, you know. So there does seem to be a kind of a, 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 a an arithmetic, so to speak, the, a calculus that applies even to this, that you could see that there would be a reason for God allowing animals to die, partly so they didn't take anything, take over the Earth in a very short time. Um, and also as part of the system that he made. Now, I realize that's controversial. Not everyone's going to be comfortable with that. Maybe you aren't. Uh, but I'm just kind of letting you know that there are different views about this, even amongst really good Christians and thoughtful well, Christians. I, I tried to take it back to the Adam and Eve. Like I had, I had asked him two questions, so I thought the third response better be, what I believe in or what I'm trying to, the pebble I'm trying to get in. Is sure. Just, you know, it's yes. just, I had to do something at that point. Good for so you. So I took it back, I took it back to the uh, Adam and Eve. I said death originally wasn't supposed to be here. You know, it wasn't part of the plan. It, I think God would have worked it out had, you know, Adam and Eve not eaten the fruit, and it'd be great to be here if that had mm-hmm. happened. But like, I, and that's all I could do is just sure. share my view. And then, you know, I invited him to watch my, you know, new, you know, my, you know, podcast. Yeah, good like, for you. So well, I don't know what else to do. <laughs> yeah, well, look it. I have been there, done that myself, seriously. And I, when I, I, I just lectured twice, gave talks twice over the weekend in Dallas at our reality conference for young people, and uh, I both those talks were on the tactical game plan. And um, and there's no there's no silver bullet to these things. Sometimes you start going and you get nowhere, and sometimes you just fall flat on your face, you know, because you don't know the circumstances and how people are going to respond. Um, but what I've discovered is and many others have as well, that when you start employing or 
using the game plan for your engagements with other people, it changes everything. It's gardening. It's focused on gardening, not harvesting. That makes it a lot more relaxing. You have a, a series of questions you can ask to draw out different types of information. What do you mean by that? What is their view? And why do you, how did you come to that conclusion? So what are the reasons for your view? And when we are using questions like that, we're letting the other person talk. We're not doing most of the talking at that point. There's no pressure on us, but those questions have this ability, as the Holy Spirit uses them, to flush out nonsense, you know, and and they've they've uh they've done that really well in my experience. In fact, someone stopped me um last weekend and pulled the tactics book out from underneath his jacket and he said, This book has changed my life. Um, and I'm not surprised because it's actually uh, changed my life, too. And I've had a lot of people that have said that as well. It's really made the job so much more easy. So, Dan from Kentucky, thank you for your call and, and for taking these things and kind of putting them into play, reading the book. And I think you'll find things are going to move out a lot easier, although you've 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 chosen a tough nut to crack evolution kind of out of the gate. Don't be discouraged. Keep up the good work. All right, that's it for this show, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stan DeRees. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.